Jack Kerouac, on the phone, Gerald Nicosia. Nice to see you, Jerry. Nice to be here, Dave. Uh, nice to talk to you again after quite a few years. You're probably the world's number one expert on Jack Kerouac. Would I say That's that? probably true. That's right. And you've got a new book we're going to get to. I want to build up to the book, though. The, the new book is called Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. And I know it's such a passion of yours. It's on Noodle Brain Press. But you and I have known each other for a long time. Um, so I just want to go step by step. What was your entryway into, into Jack? I mean, was it Dharma Bums? I mean, just talk about how your first first connection with him. Well, you know, I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois in Chicago, which we used to call Circle Campus. I guess they don't call it that anymore. But uh, anyway, I was getting my degree in American and English literature, and nobody was teaching Kerouac in any courses at all. And I was a teaching assistant, and I was sharing an office with a kind of a hip kid from Harvard, and he kept taunting me that I hadn't read Kerouac. So I decided I'd better go out and read him. And in those days, this was 1972, there were only two of his books in print, On the Road and the Dharma Bums. And I decided I'd read the less famous one, the Dharma Bums. And that book blew me away. Uh, I wasn't prepared for that at all because, you know, I was reading in, in my classes, I was reading John Updike and Philip Roth and Saul Bell, and they were all writing about kind of the middle, upper, upper middle class, you know, very respectable people. And suddenly I'm reading Jack Kerouac, uh, and it's about the, the bums and the hobos and the tramps and the homeless and the down and out and the, uh, the prostitutes. And, 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 and he's writing with this great compassion about these people of, uh, that are on the wrong side of American, uh, capitalism and and it reminded me of Jack London because when I was a kid my dad used to read to me my dad was a Sicilian uh, immigrant uh, grew up on the streets of Chicago used to read to me from Jack London uh, when I was a kid the iron heel about the oppression of the poor by the rich and as I'm reading Kerouac I'm thinking my god this is this is like Jack London who also wrote about the hobos and so on and but it was also the compassion he he was really cared about these people he wanted them to have better lives and I I just thought this is extraordinary and I was upset that no one would teach him in, in any of the classes there. Why do you but it think... wasn't just that school. Anyway, they weren't teaching him anywhere in the United States at that time. Why do you think that was? Well, the Beats, you know, they were uh, they were attacked very heavily in the in the press. Um, they were called black spots on America. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover said the Beats were one of the three. The, the former head of the FBI. I had better identify him for younger readers. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover said the Beats were one of the three greatest threats to America. Um, the uh, the press that these people got was was enormously bad, as if they were like you know leading a, an insurrection of juvenile delinquents or something. Uh, and it, it, for most of Kerouac's books went out of print very very quickly because of that. And, and academia, again, sort of accepted that, that while the Beats weren't even serious writers, they were kind of these hooligans, these, these uh, you know, uh, crazy drug addict street people, and uh, they were not taken seriously as writers at all at that point. This is the uh, October 21st, is that right, the 50th anniversary of his passing? I know. The 50th anniversary is coming up, October 21st, and it's really amazing because here you are now, 
where Kerouac is, is recognized, I think I can safely say, as one of the great uh, greatest American uh, novelists and writers of the 20th century. And yet, you know, uh, uh, 1972, when I was in graduate school, you couldn't get a professor to teach him. Yeah, right. And we're going to get into that with your book about how uh, how his image has, has evolved, for lack of a better word. So then you do Memory Babe. Tell the listeners what Memory Babe, 750 pages that came out in 1994. I mean, that's no, like 19, the, 1983. That, no, the, that the, was the, the second one. Yeah, the first right, edition right, was yeah. Grove Press, 1983. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, I... Uh, you know, I, I decided I wanted to do a book on Kerouac when I was out of school. Uh, I could have gone on to UCLA. I had a, a four-year fellowship. But at that time, again, I realized if I had done that, they weren't going to let me write a, a thesis where I was celebrating Kerouac because he was anathema. He was hated in, in academia. So I just I gave it back. And my professors at UIC, were they said, you must be crazy. You're giving away a four-year fellowship to, uh, to UCLA. I said, but no, I'm just going to go out on my own. I started working as a substitute teacher in the Chicago area supporting myself as a freelance writer, determined that someday I was going to write a book to show people uh, what a great writer Kerouac was. And uh, there was a guy named Carl Mackey in Chicago who was starting a magazine. It never got off the ground, but he gave me my first check to New York. And once I started interviewing people, I realized there were all these people out there nobody had ever talked to. And so I, I, the money dried up very quickly. The magazine went under, but I kept going. I hitchhiked. I rode buses. I slept on people's floors. And I carried this really good – I invested all my money that I had in a beautiful Sony tape recorder, the best I could buy. And I uh, taped 300 people all over the country uh, talking about Kerouac, most of whom had never been interviewed before. And what were some points of discovery for you as you went through that process? How long did that take? Well, it was two years doing the interviews, uh, two years doing the, the actual writing, and it was another two years fighting publishers. I went through three different publishers uh, that uh, they were half partway through, they would cancel out, and uh, it took another two years to get the book published. So it was a six-year process altogether. Um, what was the first question? I'm sorry. Oh, your points of discovery. What, what did you learn that you didn't know before? Well, um, certainly I learned about his bisexuality, which was something that he had kept very, very hidden. Um, and uh, and also that there was a dark side to him, I guess, because, you know, I came in with a very positive view of Kerouac, that the, here was Jack London, new Jack London and someone, a, a new champion for the poor. Uh, and, you know, I found out that uh, uh, there were there were certain traits of anti-Semitism. There was a lot of a uh, anger toward women, uh, misogyny. He didn't want to support his daughter. He didn't want to recognize his daughter. Uh, I began to see that, you know, that there was a lot of pain and anguish, as there often is in great artists' life, you know. In fact, some Sometimes I think a lot of great art comes out of that pain and anguish, but there was definitely a you know a, a, a large dark side that he was managing to somehow transform into this this book. You know, he wrote a book. He wrote a book on the road that. You know, I keep I run into people. I swear to God, almost every week I run into people. When they find out who I am, they say, "On the road changed my life." <laughs> I ran into a, an old musician here in Mill Valley, California, the other day. He said, "On the road changed my life," and that's just over and over. That book liberated people. It somehow taught people to celebrate life, to to uh, enjoy life, even if they had nothing, just to enjoy the beauty of being alive. It had all those great positive impacts, and yet the man who wrote it was himself, you know, in in a great deal of anguish and. In fact, you know, as you know, he drank himself to death at the age of forty-seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you continue on the on the path. You and I maybe last spent a lot of time together with Jack in Ghost Town. Talk about that. That was a play you put up here in Chicago, right? 
Yeah, I was uh, working with the Practical Theater at that time, uh, Paul Burroughs, and and also um, uh, I was uh, friends with John DeFusco, who was, uh, because I was working on a big book on Vietnam veterans, which eventually got published, Home to War, and I was uh, friends with John DeFusco, who was a Vietnam veteran uh, who wrote wrote and directed the play Tracers. Um, And so both both, uh, DeFusco and Paul Burroughs were saying, we need a play about Kerouac, and so I, I said, well, you know, I've certainly I've got all these interviews. I've got all this material. I can certainly, and I'm good. I think I'm a good writer. I can do it. And I wrote Jack in, in Ghost Town. And um, Paul Burroughs at the Practical Theater did the first um, staged reading of it um, at the Practical Theater. And um, Del Close uh, Del played Close. the part of Del Close played the part of the old Jack Kerouac. Um, there's a young Jack and an old Jack. You get they get two Jacks in the play. Uh, and um, I thought the and you covered that as I recall yeah. for the Sun Times and yeah. uh, I thought it went over very well. And it's had a number of staged readings basically all over the country, but it's never been never been fully produced. He, um, he I th- think he played. I was going through my notes. He uh, Dell had some Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker music in the background and stuff. I mean. Oh, they did a very nice, yeah. you know, a staged reading, but they actually did a very nice job with sound effect, music effects, and, and I mean, I thought it was it was very well done. Uh, someday, I, I'm about to turn 70 years old here. I hope if, while I'm still alive, I get to see that play actually produced somewhere. <laughs> okay, and then uh, we're going to get into the book in a little bit. Why have you, why have you stuck with this so long, as, him as a subject? Well, you know... Uh, I wrote a long time ago. Somebody asked me way back, and I don't know, 18, 1981. Uh, you know, uh, what are you what are you moving on to? And of course, I have moved on to a number of things. I wrote this big book on Vietnam veterans, yeah. and now I'm working on a big biography of Entezaki Shange, the pioneer black uh, woman writer for colored girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. But anyway, I told this guy at the time. I said, "Well, Kerouac, you know, he just won't let go of me. For some yeah. reason, um, he's not done with me yet." And you know, I became close friends with his daughter, uh, Jan. Yeah, we'll and, get to uh, that. Yeah. And and I mean that's part, a big part of the reason why he remained in my life. I'm yeah. not well. I mean, obviously, he remained in my life because as a writer, he's been an influence on me all my life. But yeah. uh, uh, you know, Jan was a, a, a very very troubled person. She didn't have. A, he wasn't a father to yeah. her. Her mother was not around. Uh, she grew up on the streets of New York. Got into drugs early, and okay. and was uh, and was uh, cut off from her from her father's estate, yeah. which she didn't know why, but it turned out to be a forged will. But anyway, her okay. Well, we got we got Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. We got to take a break, and then we'll get back okay. to her. <laughs> okay? All right, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Hey, Jack. Now for the tricky part. When you were the brightest star, who were the shadows? All the San Francisco B-Boys, you were the favorite. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal. I'm Dave Hoekstra, and on the phone is author Gerald Nicosia, the author of Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. It's uh, out now. We'll get the information to you here in a minute. Um, you say here at the reasons for this book, Jerry, is um, I feel it's high time for people who say they love Jack Kerouac to start to think about what he really stood for. It was not commerce or capitalism or local boosterism, but ra- I like this, but rather the universal sacred heart. How do you feel about people uh, name-checking him in rock songs like 10,000 Maniacs just did there? Oh, well, that's great. I mean, the, you know, the fact that he influenced all these writers and artists 
Curtis, Bob Dylan, Patti Smith. I mean, this is this is beautiful. Uh, what I'm what I'm complaining about is, you know, Kerouac has been turned into a cash cow over the last twenty some years, and uh, his manuscripts and his papers were sold off piecemeal to collectors and dealers for the highest prices. On the road, the man that first pioneer roll manuscript, he typed the whole thing on a hundred and twenty foot long roll of paper, speed typist, that was sold off to to Jim Ursay, the owner of the right. Indianapolis Colts, for two and a half million dollars. And uh, many other manuscripts were sold off. We don't even know where they are. And of course, you know, they have leather Kerouac, leather jackets, Banana Republic was marketing, and Volvo was using Kerouac in an ad. That's what I'm complaining about, that kind of commercialization. But the fact that he's inspiring artists, well, that's a good thing, you know. You point out that he died with $91 in his bank account. That's an absolute true fact, yes. Talk about, we kind of, kind of cut you off there for the breaks, but talk about Jane. You did a thing uh, with her called A Life in Memory in 2009, but you, you were very close to her. Don't understate it. You were taking care of her when she was sick, uh, Jan, and uh, you know, talk, talk about her. Well, Jan was a very close friend of mine and a very dear friend and a, a really amazing writer in her in her own right. She wrote three novels, two of which were published in her lifetime, Baby Driver and Train Song. The third one, Parrot Fever, has been kept out of print, again, because of the uh, the pressure from the Kerouac estate, because of the lawsuit that she brought this lawsuit against the Kerouac estate for forging her grandmother's will, which she only discovered uh, when she was dying of kidney failure a, a few years before her death. And the, the case finally went to trial years after she died, uh, Jack's uh, nephew, Paul Blake, finally carried it to trial. It was proven in court that the Sampas family had forged the will of, of Gabriel Kerouac, but because of a legal loophole, which was essentially a statute of limitations, that the, 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 the verdict had come too late, they still keep this estate, even though it's been proven. It's in the books. It was a final appeal, appellate decision. It was proven. The estate of Jack Kerouac was stolen by a forged will. Uh, but anyway, Jan was, Jan was fighting this while she was dying. She was dying of kidney failure. She was on dialysis every day. Uh, the last four years of her life, and uh, it was very hard. But she she didn't want it. People, you know, the the other side, the, the people that were trying to keep this stolen estate. Oh, she's doing it for the money. Well, she wasn't doing it for the money. She knew she was going to die, but she wanted to preserve his papers. She wanted to get them all in one place in a library where people could study them and stop this selling off of things. And uh, and so I was uh, helping her and supporting her in that. But I, we had been friends way way back from the time we were both in our twenties in in the late nineteen seventies, and she. She was, uh, in those days, a, a very beautiful woman and brilliant woman, and, but troubled because, you know, she didn't have a father. She was haunted by the father who was never there for her. The brother-in-law, John Sampas, that's who you're talking about, inherited the literary rights to his work. Now, he passed away in 2018, correct? Yes, that's correct. So where's where are things right now? Well, the Sampas family, uh, they're still controlling the estate because of this, uh, it's called a Florida non-claim statute. It's essentially a statute of limitations. Even though it was proven that they got this, uh, Stella, Jack's widow, got this material by forging his will, uh, and then she died in 1990 before anybody knew that it was a forgery, and she left everything to her brothers and sisters, and, and Jan didn't discover this till four years later and didn't bring her lawsuit till four years later. And so under Florida law, because that lawsuit was filed too late, um, even though it was proven in court the will was a forgery, they still keep everything. And, and now the uh, state is being managed by uh, John Sampas's nephew, Jim, and his adopted son, John Shen Sampas. 
But there's a great deal of control being placed on Kerouac scholarship. That's one of the things I talk about in my book. You know, you, if you, they put some materials at the New York Public Library, but if you want to use them, you need the permission of the Sampas family. If you want to write anything about Kerouac, you've got to get their permission. Um, and if they don't like what you're writing about Kerouac, you're not going to be able to use those materials. This kind of control has been really dam damaging Kerouac scholarship, I think. Are they aware of this book? Uh, I haven't heard anything yet, but I would think so. It's had some. There's some initial reviews out on the on the web, so uh, I'm sure they're aware of it. Now, uh, there's, nothing, we're gonna... there's nothing I say in the book that's not absolutely documented and true. Those decisions are on file in the the probate court of Pinellas County, Florida. If anybody wants to look them up, well, it's a great book, and it's it's you know it's passionate because you're not a it's a, it's a great read because you're not a neutral you're not a neutral observer at all. You know what I mean? Um, now, I'm going to let you call the shots here, Jerry, since we're old friends. Do you want to read a poem, or do you want to talk about the Joan Anderson letter? Uh, that's one of my favorite chapters. I think that was the uh, eye-opener for some of the listeners. You want to talk? Maybe we can do let's both. Let's talk about the Joan Anderson yeah. letter. I, but let's mention that I am going to be yeah. reading my poetry at St. Louis University, if you want to tell that, or I can give the, the, the uh, November 2nd at uh, uh, the, uh, the Arts Hall there at St. Louis University, November 2nd, with a jazz, eight-piece jazz ensemble. I'm going to be reading my poems about Jack Kerouac and the Beats in St. St. Louis University. Yeah, we have St. Louis 2nd. listeners uh, uh, from a forthcoming book called Beat Scrapbook at the Krasenberg Arts Center at St. Louis University, accompanied by George Sams and his eight piece Jazz Ensemble. It's free, eight o'clock, free and open to the public. That's right. Good for you, Jerry. Are you going to come up from Chicago and promote any of this? Oh, there. Well, no, no, I'm not. I, I'm just coming into St. Louis and then coming back to the Bay Area where I live now. But since we have a little bit of time, let's just do the Cassidy letter because I'd, I'd be glad to talk about that. It is really important. And the Joan I, Anderson letter, uh, you mean? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. Cassidy. Cassidy's Joan slash, Anderson letter. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Talk about that. Well. Uh, nobody knew where it was. People thought it was lost off, off of a houseboat in Sausalito. Uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, he had been struggling for years to write on the road, he, uh, to write about Neil Cassidy, this wild car thief, womanizer, fireball of energy. And, and Jack felt like this this man represented the dynamo of post-war America, you know, the car thief zooming all over America. But he, he couldn't figure out how to write about him. And, and he kept trying to do it in traditional fictional fashion, give him a fictional background and a fictional character. It wasn't working. And then Neil sent him this, uh, which we knew about it because Jack told people about it. He sent Neil sent him this 40,000-word, single-spaced, typed letter recounting all of his adventures in Denver, seducing women, stealing cars. And it was all, you know, in the first person, right as it happened. And when Jack read that huge, long letter, he said, this is how I have to write on the road. I, you know, I'm not going to. And it was really the foundation of new, what's called new journalism. You yeah. know, Tom Wolfe and, and uh, Hunter Thompson, where you're writing about real events, but you're doing it with character and dialogue. And Jack said, this is how I'm going to write on the road. I'm this was December, exactly what Neil did. December 1950. For, you, you're right, for giving him the key to writing on the road. I mean, this is an amazing discovery. Well, they, and they, so this, this letter, apparently, um, uh, Allen Ginsberg had sent a copy of it out to some small publisher. They were trying to get it. Uh, Neil and, and Neil, I'm sorry, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac were trying to get Neil Cassidy published because they felt he was as great a writer as they were. And so uh, Allen Ginsberg was sending the letter out to little publishers. 
they sent a copy out to this little press in San Francisco. The guy didn't publish it, and he just put it in his uh, whatever you want to call it, his garbage pile. <laughs> and then, then when his office closed down, somebody else scooped up all that garbage and kept it, uh, you know, stored away in a house somewhere. And it was only like three or four years ago that when the guy, the the guy, the guy who had taken the letter off from the other guy's garbage pile, he died, and his daughter said, sent somebody in. Can you go through this house and see what my dad left? If there's anything of value in there, and this guy is sort of a professional scavenger, Michael McQuaid. He goes in there and he's going through everything. He's a big Kerouac fan, and he's going through all this stuff, you know, old pieces of jewelry and this and that. And suddenly he comes upon this letter, which describing all these adventures in Denver in 1945. And the guy's enough of a Kerouac fan to think, wait a minute, this is the Joe Henderson letter. This is the thing we've all thought was lost. And so it finally surfaced, and, and it was uh, sold to a university, I think, down in, in Texas or somewhere. But it hasn't been published yet. There's, uh, again, there's been some some uh, some issues, some legal issues, where the Kerouac estate was trying to to uh, get the rights to publish it from the Cassidy estate, and, and there's still some ling- legal entanglements going on. So I've got to, I was privileged to read it because Jamie Cassidy, Neil's daughter, is a good friend of mine, and she gave me a copy of it. I was blown away because Dave, not only are the connections to On the Road in that letter, there are connections to five or six other Kerouac books in that letter. In fact, the whole voice of it is very much Kerouac's voice, and I'm thinking that maybe Kerouac isn't, you know, he, maybe he's, he's a great writer, but in a different way than we thought. Maybe he didn't originate all this stuff. He was just smart enough that when he heard this in Neil Cassidy, he realized this is new. This is a new way of writing, you know. Boy, that's that's fascinating, and it's it's not available to the public yet. It's locked up. No, no, it's in this library that bought it at an auction, and, and again, you could look this up online. I forget the name of the school. It's down. It's down in the south somewhere. It's either Louisiana or Texas, but I mean, it, it can be viewed. It's a, uh, at least it's in a library, unlike these Kerouac manuscripts that were sold to collectors and dealers and so on. This is actually in a library, thank God. And the Cassidy's plan to publish it at some point if they ever get past all the legal entanglements. It says here, record producer Jack Spinoza supposedly found it. And I mean, so it was a record producer who was involved in this. Well, he was the guy that, that his office mate died. And instead of throwing all the papers in the garbage, he, I guess he thought his office mate was this small publisher. And I guess he thought, well, gee, this might be some interesting stuff. I think I should save it. And he did nothing with it. He just kept it in his house. And then when Jack Spinoza died, it was his daughter who hired yeah. the, the professional scavenger to come come to the house and you know see if you can find any jewelry or anything valuable. And the guy signs the Joan Anderson letter. Um, we got a couple minutes left. I want you to shout out the website and how people can find out about your book and also how they can find out more about you, Jerry. Uh, well, I have a website, uh, GeraldNicosia.com, G-E-R-A-L-D-N-I-C-O-S-I-A. Um, the book is uh, uh, it's a small press, and it's not on Amazon yet. It's Noodle Brain Press, but um, uh, they can uh, uh, they can write to P.O. Box 130, Corte Madera, California, 94976, and they can, uh, they can get information on the book or order the book that way. And I'm hoping soon to have it on Amazon. It's really just about to be released. It's uh, sort, of, sort of just off the press. So, but uh, hopefully in a month or two it'll be on Amazon. How busy are you this month with all this all this stuff going on? Really, really busy because you know Memory Babe has been out of print for eighteen years, and I'm trying to get it back into print. It's been a real struggle. Part of it is that, that because of my support for Jan Kerouac, yeah. I've had a lot of opposition from the Kerouac estate, and it's really made it very difficult. I, I did a, a whole new uh, version of Memory Babe. I did a revised and updated Memory Babe uh, based on all this new material, like the, the Cassidy letter, uh, and I'm trying now to find somebody that will publish uh, the new Memory Babe. And plus, I'm trying. 
trying to, uh, you know, get some publicity for Kerouac uh, the last quarter century, and I'm uh, going to be going to Los Angeles. There's a big art center there called Beyond Baroque. On the eve of the anniversary, October 20th, I'll be doing a legacy event. I'll be doing a legacy event in Lowell, Massachusetts, Kerouac's hometown, on October 12th at St. Anne's Church. So uh, a lot of stuff for Kerouac this month. Well, thank you. And people can see you uh, November 2nd in St. Louis, right? That's absolutely right. Well, thank you, Jerry. Thanks for taking your time out on a Saturday. You know, uh, I think it's in your book. When you write about someone, you also take on their karma. And I, I think that's yes. happened with you. Uh, for, for good and for bad, <laughs> but, you know, you can't, uh, you can't argue with your fate. And uh, plus, I could have had a worse person. You know, at least I'm not writing about Charlie Manson. I'm writing about somebody that did a lot of good and inspired a lot of people. So that's a good thing. You're the best, Jerry Nicosia, author of Kerouac, The Last Quarter Century. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.